It's been wonderful to be with you this weekend. I, um, like Brother Mark, don't really have the words to to express how I feel. I'm not a very verbal person, and you may think that's strange for a preacher to say, but many of us are not. <clears throat> I heard a, I've heard people say before, uh, why do preachers talk with one another? I said, because we're the only ones that understand each other. I mean... <laughs> We're strange to everybody else. We're strange to ourselves. And sometimes we just hang around each other because it's just strange being with strange. So, <clears throat> But I do have enjoyed being with you. I uh, hope my first trip here is not one of those where you tell your pastor, listen, let him go back where he came from. Good riddance. So I'd like to go uh, to a place I didn't intend to go to this morning. I really didn't know where I was going to go. And it was somewhere during service that... I decided I'd go here, and if I start hooking into Brother Mark now, I may never get to the text, so we'll just hook as we go along. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, as he's closing this letter, he he brings to light some things that I, I admit, if you read the Old Testament, it's very easy to pass over. It's very easy to just move on, go on, and, and not really think about the importance of what's happening. He says in verse 10, he says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, also has suffered without the gate. By him, therefore, let us go without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer up the praise of God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. For with such sacrifices, God, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The Apostle Paul here is bringing all things home on how much better we have things now than they had then. He said, what we have now at our altar, at our table, they had no right to. But he brings in an illustration, and it's an odd one, to show what our altar is like, what our table is like. He starts bringing to mind the bodies of those beasts that were offered and their bodies were burned without the camp. What he's describing, I think, most pertinently is the the close of what happens on the Day of Atonement. It happened on other days, but on the close of the Day of Atonement, again, this is a detail that I have just read over, passed over, moved through, and not really thought about it. So allow me to summarize the Day of Atonement in two, three minutes. In three minutes, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, it happened one day a year. And on that one day, the high priest went to a place that he only went to on that day and no other day. It was beyond the second veil into the holiest of all. And when he went back beyond the veil, first he changed his clothes and he took off his priestly garments and put on linen garments. He goes in with the blood of a goat that is the Lord's goat. He sprinkles that blood upon the altar seven times. He comes back out. The other goat, which was known as a scapegoat, he pronounces the sins of all the people upon that scapegoat's head. The fit man leads that scapegoat into a land uninhabited. The priest goes back into the uh, tabernacle. He puts his high priestly garments back on. And comes back out to the people. And I submit to you everything I just described is Jesus Christ. 
He's the high priest. He's the slain goat. He's the scapegoat. He's the fit man. He's the holy place. He's the mercy seat. He's the holiest of all. He's all of that. There's nothing on the day of atonement in this scene where atonement happens where it does not point to Jesus Christ. But now atonement's done. But the chapter's not over. And I forewent the whole uh, bullet being sacrificed for the priest's sins because that doesn't apply to Jesus Christ. He didn't have any sins to atone for. But that bullet and that goat and those bodies of those beasts were then taken without the camp. And there was a man, doesn't give a name, doesn't give a qualification, just says a man, took those bodies, he burned them without the camp, then he would come in and he would wash himself and change his raiment and be unclean until the even. All he is, if you allow common layman's terms, he was the cleanup crew. If you've seen the road crews out there picking up roadkill off the road, that's kind of this guy's job. I mean, that's, that's what he was. But that's what Paul is bringing us to think about. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they're burned without the camp. What's our command? By him, therefore, let us go without the camp, bearing his reproach. When I first saw this, it became very precious to me because I thought, what an odd illustration, but what a perfect illustration for the altar and the table that we have. What would you say if someone said, hey... I want you to go with me today. And you're like, what are you going to do? Well, we're going to clean up dead bodies. You'd be like, nah, thanks. But you know what the world thinks whenever you say, hey, I'm going to church. You want to come? They're like, eh, I don't think so. You know why? Because unto one, we're the savor of life unto life. And to the other, we're the savor of death unto death. You know what this smells like to the world? Nothing more than a dead body. Doesn't smell like anything more than that, which I would just rather be doing anything else. But the man who was burning those bodies without the camp, what did those bodies mean to him? What was the, the, the reference point? He was saying, this is blood that was shed on my behalf. This is something that I watched happen. And when it took place, once again, I saw a ceremony by which my sins were washed away. In ceremony, not in real, reality, but in ceremony. And it meant something to that man. Yes, he was handling a dead body. Yes, he was unclean until the evening. Yes, he had to change his clothes and wash his body. But it meant something to him. And here Paul is saying this should mean something to us because this is a table and this is an altar that we have that they had no right to eat of. The Old Testament people did not have the right to do what we're doing today because the sacrifice had not yet been done. By the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice has been done... We have a right to some things. We have access to some things. You know, there was a man in the, in the book of John. He's mentioned three times. And I'm always amazed when things are brought up about this man. I'm like, what? Who cares? I've, I've watched preachers for hours upon hours upon hours in living rooms, hotel rooms, association grounds, in church kitchens. Debate, was Nicodemus born again in John chapter 3 or not? Who cares? <laughs> No charge for that. Who cares? You know why I say that? Because come John 19, they all agree he's born again. They all agree about that. Now, I don't know when it happened. That's not the point. But I tell you, the three times he's mentioned in the book of John, it's a very interesting transition. Because when he comes in John 3, he comes to Jesus by night. Because he doesn't want anybody to see it happen. You can debate why he came, the purpose of him coming. It's immaterial. He came at night. 
He wanted nobody to see it. You see him again in John 7, and he's talking to a few of his closer friends saying, well, maybe we ought to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we ought to hear him a little bit. And his friends are like, are you crazy? But come John 19, and yes, what happens in John 19 is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only give the name of one man who did this. Because Joseph of Arimathea had a, borrow, had a tomb that he was going to lay Jesus in. It was a borrowed grave. And he's the one who Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us was handling the body of Jesus. But in John, he takes the time to tell us that Joseph didn't do that alone. Nicodemus was there. He helped him take the body down, wrap it up, put the spices in, and lay it in Joseph's new tomb. Because he went from going to Jesus by night to talking to his friends and letting anybody and everybody see that he was not ashamed of the body of his Lord. You say, well, preacher, I don't have the the body of my Lord. Yes, you do. Because you have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. We have been told to come without the camp, bearing his reproach. Why? Because he's gone without the gate to suffer for us. The world sees this body as nothing more than a carcass that stinks of death. But this ought to be that which is precious to us because it's the body of the head whose blood has been shed for us. I don't care who knows the body that I belong to. I don't care who knows what I am. I remember when I was a little boy and, you know, you'd be at school and people would say, well, what are you? I'm a Baptist. (laughs) Because the Baptist didn't offend people generally back then. About everything offends people now. I don't even know what I can and cannot say, which is I don't worry about it. I just barge right on in and go on about my business. But, you know, I I was a a little, I don't want to say ashamed, but I'm like, I just don't want to deal with this today. I just really, really deal with it today. I remember when people would say, now, wait a minute, where do you go to church? Why do you drive all the way over there? Isn't there somewhere closer? Wait a minute, you're going on vacation where? You're, you're taking days off from work to drive 500 miles across three states to a church meeting? Now, don't get me wrong. Brother Ward and uh, Sister Kathy live in Arlington. I remember the first time I came to Arlington. No, it was not to Six Flags. It was to Paradise Primitive Baptist Church for the Chambers Creek Association. And my brother and I stood out there and went, There's Six Flags. It's right over there. Why are we here? That was my first experience in Arlington, Texas. But friends, the more I have lived and the more I think about things, I am so thankful that my parents took me without the camp. I'm thankful that they taught me how precious the body of Jesus Christ is. Because, friends, my parents can't make me see the beauty of Zion. My parents couldn't show me the glory of Zion. But what my parents showed me is how much it meant to them. Parents, and I say this to myself, as one, children understand what's important and what is done because it has to be done. My children know Daddy does not like going to work sometimes. They know that, see, I'm normally gone in the morning before they get up for school. And they know that if they get up for school and Daddy hadn't left yet, Daddy is kind (laughs) of doesn't want to get out the door. They see that. But I hope they never see me dragging my foot going, well, I guess it's time to go to church. They pick up on it. They'll see it. And what I learned from my parents was just how precious handling this body is. 
And friends, they didn't have any right to that there because the body had not had this form yet. It had not taken this shape because the head had not yet been put to death. And Paul encourages us to go without the gate, to go without the camp, to bear his reproach. Why? Because here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. As I mentioned yesterday, all that is out there, it's weak, it's vain, it's perishable. But the thing that we have here, the substance of it, is the very same substance that go right up into heaven itself. When he delivers the kingdom up to his father, it's going to be of the very same substance as what we have, which is why when we view this and we handle this, we can say, this is where my atonement springs from. This isn't what makes me say, but it's where it springs from. Because friends, even though I don't have the literal body of Christ like Joseph and Nicodemus did, one day he's going to look at me and he's going to look at you and he's going to say, come, you blessed of my father. This is all yours. And it's not going to be ours because of what we did. What we did is because it's ours and he's going to show us what our nature is. You know how I know that? Because he's going to look at me. He's going to say, I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you ministered to me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And I'm going to say, well, thanks, Lord. I sure am glad. Nobody else gave me credit for nothing. No. I'm going to look at him and I'm going to see him in all his glory with all the holy angels with him. And I'm going to say, how were you ever hungry? Who could ever put you in prison? Who could ever strip you of raiment? How were you ever naked? You know what he's showing me? He's not showing me how good a person I am. He's going to show me what my nature is and how good he made me. That's the point. We didn't do these things to find his good graces. He's showing us that the things we did were because of his good graces. And he's going to look at me and say, Inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When we handle one another, we're handling Jesus Christ. When we speak to one another, we're speaking to Jesus Christ. When you bow down and wash your brother's feet, you're washing the feet of Jesus Christ. And when your brother bows down, it's the hands of Jesus that are washing your feet. That's the body of Christ in action with one another. And the only reason this body has anything worthwhile is because atonement has taken place. And Paul says, this is not continuing. I'm sorry, this is not continuing but all that we do without the gate, it will continue into that city which is to come. Now, for the sake of time, verse 17, he says, By him, therefore, let us offer unto him praise of God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. There's three things in this verse that stick out to me, and one of those is continually. You know, they never got to take a day off or a year off from doing the ceremony of God. They, they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't say, you know, <clears throat> this has been an all right year. Maybe we'll just skip atonement this year. <laughs> they couldn't do that. It was something that had to be offered continually, year by year. They couldn't say, we well, you know this is our fifth child. Do we really need to bring another lamb to the, t- to the temple, to the tabernacle? I mean, we've already brought four. No, you had to do it. And friends, it wasn't something that should be done because it had to be done. It should have been a labor of love, although it wasn't always. 
And I'll say this, what I'm about to describe ought to be a labor of love, although it isn't always. There's times that I don't continually want to do these things. There's times, friends, when I'll just be honest, as a, as a man, I'm not thankful. I'm not. And there's times that I want to put praise on the shelf so I can say what I want to say. When Brother Randy said yesterday, I am doing what I want to do every time, I said, not me. (laughs) There's times that I really want to say how I really want to say. And it ain't praise. (laughs) It's something else. You please pray for me this afternoon on I-35. I'll take all the prayers I can get. (laughs) But friends, is there ever a time when praise is not in season? Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, he says, Rejoice evermore. That means all the time. Pray without ceasing all the time. In everything, giving thanks all the time. Brother Mark uh, mentioned that there were, you know, things that happened where... You wonder, what happened from here to here? What, what was the change from here to here? I've actually met people where I thought, well, that is not the person I remember, you know, from however many years ago. You know, I don't know what Naomi's natural, natural appearance looked like from the time she left Bethlehem, Judah, to the time she came back. But obviously a big change had happened because they're like, is that Naomi? Is that, is that really her? I mean, life had been hard on her. I mean, she'd lost her husband. She'd lost her children. She was basically coming back a destitute widow with nothing more than a stranger, although a good woman, as a daughter-in-law. And when they were like, is this Naomi? She goes, well, it used to be. It ain't anymore. You know, I can imagine that there are times in our life when things affect us. It happens to me and it changes me. And I'm like, well, maybe at one point I could have, but not anymore. Well, you know... I was able to forgive them five years ago, but no more. I was able to get over it ten years ago, but they've just been too bad. I can't get over it anymore. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't look at us and say, I just can't get over it anymore? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ has already put all those things away and he's passed all those things? I'm going to tell you, the Bible's very plain when it says, if we say we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. Because how can a man say he loves God whom he has not seen, but hate his brother whom he has seen? Friends, how we treat our brethren is an extension of how we feel about God. You ever thought about that? How we treat one another is an extension of how we feel about God. It's not a surprise to me that people treat their brethren with bribery and treachery. You know why? Because they preach a God of bribery and treachery. If you do this, I'll help you. If you don't do this, you better not do this or I'm going to do this. Friends, that's just bribery and treachery and uh, extortion and all these other things. Our God tells us, I have done all these things for you and I haven't even asked you what you felt about it. What's your response going to be? Ought to be, thank you, Lord. You know what? If we would say, well, I don't deserve anything from the hand of God, but I'm thankful for what he's given me. Why should we feel like we deserve something from the hand of man? Tell you a word that I've tried to dis- dissolve out of my vocabulary is the word deserve. I get so tired when I hear people say, Oh, you deserve this. Well, 
Maybe so, but I'm so glad I did not get what I deserved. I'm, I'll take what he deserves. I'm thankful for that. But friends, Paul says, let us offer this continually. And what is that? It's so simple. It's the praise of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. I've heard people say, well, preacher, I just, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in life. I tell you, man's been asking for the longest time, who am I and what is my purpose here? The Bible is abundantly clear on that. The Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is what? The whole duty of man. The problem isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't want to do what we're supposed to do. Because, friends, it's easy to say, let's praise him all the time. It's easy to say, let's give thanks in every season, but it's a whole lot harder to apply. But I want to show you very quickly what the beauty of this is. Because, friends, uh, I'm, I'm an idiot. I, I really am. Whenever people say, I thought you were smart, I'm like, you have so much to figure out. I mean, I am not smart. I, it, I'm, it takes me so long to think of things. They say, well, it seems like you, 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 the reason I know anything, one, is because God blessed me, and two, I've thought about it for a long time. I mean, preachers got tired of asking me questions at meetings. They're like, he never gives an answer because I don't have one then. I have to think about it for a long time. But I've thought about this for a long time. It's always interesting to me when things come out, and I'm so far behind fads. You know, people used to say, why, why were you wearing those clothes then? Because they were now at the Salvation Army, and that's where Mom got them, okay? So everybody else was wearing shorts that came down to here back in the early 80s. I was wearing those in the late 80s. Why? Because the Salvation Army had them. They were wearing socks up to here in the early 80s. I was wearing those in the late 80s because they were at the Salvation Army. So I'm always about five to ten years behind fashion. Now I'm a man, and I was like, these are my clothes. I'm happy with them moving on. So my clothes are probably stuck in time at whatever point in time that is. Anyway, what am I talking about? Oh, <laughs> so I remember 20 years ago, whenever it was, I started seeing these uh, acronyms everywhere. I work for the government, the land of acronyms. And I'm like, what does that mean? It was WWJD. I'm like, I don't know what that means. And finally someone said, isn't that really cool? I'm like, it would be if I knew what it was, I guess. And they said, well, it means what would Jesus do? Aren't you a preacher? Don't you know that? And I went, I don't know what book, chapter, or verse that came from. But I didn't have an answer immediately. But the more I thought about it, I was like, that's dumb, really, when you think about it. If any of you love that, I'm sorry. I'll be on my way home in a little bit. The more I thought about it, I'm like, why are we asking what would Jesus do? We know what Jesus did. We should say, what has Jesus done? We shouldn't be asking, what would the Lord have me to do? We should be asking, what has the Lord told me to do? Because, friends, it is supremely simple in concept that if I will spend my days in thanks unto Him for what He has done and giving praise to Him and, by extension, showing that to my brother and to my neighbor, will I have time to complain? Will I have time to grumble? Will I have time to get all upset? Brother Mark, I'm about convinced that some people call it concern, but it's still worry, all right? Well, I'm not worried. I'm pastor. I'm not worried. I'm concerned. No, you're worried. I can see it all over your face. <clears throat> I like what I heard Elder Ronald Lawrence say many, many times. He said, you know, people say, I just can't sleep, and I'm having trouble, and my stomach's all tied up in knots. He said, and I asked them to go through a, a typical day. He said, they wake up, and they watch the news. Right before they go to bed, they watch the news. He said, now I know why you can't sleep. Now I know why your stomach's tied up in knots. He said, in the morning, he said, get a cup of coffee and go for a walk. He said, at night, watch I Love Lucy and go to bed. You'll probably sleep better. Your stomach will feel better. And I say, amen and amen. 
I mean, as a matter of fact, better than I love Lucy, go read the book of First Chronicles. You'll either get put to sleep because that's what Chronicles are for, or you'll get a blessing in reading. It's going to be a blessing either way. I have so lost track. All right. Oh, so if you spend your days giving thanks unto him, because he's always worthy of thanks, if you give your days giving praise unto him, and by extension your brethren, there is nothing in life, I I will say, that should trouble our rest or disturb our peace. It shouldn't, because, friends, Christ's work has superseded all those things. But I want you to notice the beauty of this, and I do know it's 12 o'clock. If you'll give me 30 seconds, I'll tell you a funny Mike Montgomery story. All right, thank you. So Mike Montgomery had the same father in the ministry that I do, Elder Bill Walden, and he taught us that it was a cardinal sin among the primitive Baptists to go past 12 o'clock. And Mike had that pounded into his head from the very time he started. When I lived in Georgia, those brethren are weird in a lot of ways, but one is they actually start church at 11, which means you don't get started preaching till 11.30. And... Well, they'd be happy if you quit at 12. They don't mind if you go to 12.30. Well, I'd been out there long enough. I'd just kind of gotten used to it. And even though Mike, in the back of his head, knew that and knew he didn't get started till 11.30, he kept looking up at that big clock on the wall going, oh, i got to move, i got to move, i got to move. And finally I'm like, he's only been up there 15 minutes. <laughs> and finally at 12 o'clock he goes, I'll have to preach about more of this later this weekend. Thank you. And he sat down. And everybody said, would you have him back? We love him. <laughs> Anyway, so I know it's 12. But there's another point I need to make from verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. Paul talks about these sacrifices and this communication. I want you to notice how he describes it. Because I failed to put this in the proper scope for the longest time. He says, to do good and to communicate, forget not. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You need to pay attention when the Bible says something over and over and over again because it's obviously important and the Lord's repeating it for emphasis. It also pays to pay attention to things that God uses sparingly in the Word of God because it means that it's not just given out for all kind of things. The Bible does not often use the term of God being well-pleased. He uses it sparingly. And I submit to you that outside of this location, every time he uses that expression, he's using it in reference to a person that is very, very important. It's his son. When Jesus went down into the water and came up again in the Jordan River, the Father thundered down from heaven and said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Moses and Elijah, and Peter opens his mouth yet one more time to say, Well, let's just make three altars right here. Got too, too many, Peter. Because while he says that, Elijah and Moses go away. And Jesus is the only one there. And a cloud comes down and a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Don't worry about those others. You listen to him. The Lord uses this expression to describe how he feels about his son. His son was so important to him that John says he dwelt in his father's bosom. He was with his father in the beginning. He's all things been made by him. He's the very express image of his father. He has his father's power. He has his father's glory. He has his father's honor. 
I'll even say this, even though he says, I came not down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, his will is united completely with his father's. I mean, they're aligned and in perfect fellowship and unity. I can tell you that the closest person I'm aligned to in this world is my wife. But we don't see eye to eye all the time. But even though we don't see eye to eye all the time, I can honestly say that because she is my wife and I love her, that she is my wife and I'm well pleased with her. And I say that with humility because if I have a good wife, it's because I found favor of the Lord and I found a good thing. But allow me to say this. It's easy sometimes when you have something good to forget how good it is because you want to focus on that which is bad. There's an old object lesson that I read about years ago where a professor told everybody to write down what they saw. And he held up a simple sheet of paper, computer paper, that had a dot in the middle of it. And he said, for five minutes, write down your thoughts on what you see. And everybody in the class wrote down, well, there's a dot in the middle, about the middle of the page. It's about this big. It kind of looks like this. It's this color. And his point was, all of you wrote about the smallest object in the middle of that thing. The overwhelming majority of that was a white piece of paper that was eight and a half by 11. Friends, we focus on the, the very small things that disturb our peace and disturb our rest, forgetting the big picture of how great God is and how much glory he has. But we also forget about the fact that even though we are little specks and we're little dots, what God is focused on and what God is, is beholden upon is not, friends, who we are by nature, but who we are based on what he has made us to be. And when our actions align with the nature that he's made us to be, when we're not just his children, but we're walking as his children, when we're not just uh, bearing his name, but bearing it with honor and bearing it faithfully, when we're going without the camp, bearing his reproach, and he looks at us, you know what he sees? He sees his son's face staring back up at him because it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, shining out of these bodies of clay. That's why the Apostle Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Notice that prayer in Ephesians 3. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I tell you, I've read that so many times and thought, well, I'm waiting. Bring it. Lord, I know you can. Friends, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church, world without end. Amen. Friends, a lot of times the problem isn't his ability, his power, or even his will to do so. It's because we have not stepped out on faith and walked as we should. And when we do, and he sees us walking in such a way, communicating in such a way, having praise in our lips, giving thanks into his name, he looks at us and he says, These are my people with whom I am well pleased. This is my family in whom I am well pleased in how they walk. I don't have the words to describe God and the honor and the reverence that he deserves. So allow me to use my language. And if it's, if it's bad, you can just please cast a mantle of charity over me. I believe when Jesus Christ walked this earth and he came up out of the Jordan River, the Lord looked at Gabriel and said, there he is. There's my son. Look at him. I believe, friends, when he was going to Calvary, he told Michael, stay your hand. There's my son doing what he said he was going to do. And I believe 
when we meet in accord such as this at the altar that they didn't have a right to eat at, I believe the Lord looks down from heaven. He looks at his son. He says, there's our family. There's our people. There's your tribe and mine. Look how they walk. Look how they talk. Friends, I don't believe God is ever surprised by anything, but he told Abraham when Abraham had the knife in the air, he says, now I know. Did he already know that? Sure he knew. He knew Abraham was going to be faithful. But you know what God did? He saw and experienced Abraham's faithfulness. He didn't just see it in prospect. He saw it in experience. I believe he had every confidence in his son that his son would do exactly what he promised to do, but he saw it in execution, and he was pleased with it when it happened. And friends, he knows what we're capable of. There's not a thought in our heart, but he does not already know it afar off. He sees the end from the beginning. He declares all things from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I'll do all my pleasure. But friends, when he sees it in execution, when he sees it happening, he says, That's what I paid for. That's what my blood has bought. That's the people that bear my name. And I'm well pleased with that. Very quickly, there's a, there's a scene a very small scene at the beginning of John chapter 12 where Jesus comes back to a town where something amazing happened. In John 11, he raises a man back to life who's been dead for four days. In John 12, he comes back to Bethany. He comes back to the very same house. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. And each one of them had something they did that night. Lazarus sat at the table and ate with him as a testimony of Christ's power over death. Mary served him as a testimony of her service to her Lord. And Mary broke an alabaster box of ointment over his feet and began to wash his feet and to wipe him with the hairs of her head as a testimony of her service to his walk. But there's a very small expression in there. It says, there they made him a supper. The Bible calls it a supper. I've argued with people all over the country about what the proper definition is of certain meals. Everybody normally agrees on what breakfast is, I think. And I'll admit this comes from West Texas because I was from there and raised by parents from there. So my thinking is West Texan. If you don't like that over here in North Texas, that's fine. I'll go back to South Texas where I live now. <clears throat> I was taught that the midday meal is lunch. Out in the South, they call it dinner. That's fine. And your normal evening meal is supper. And a dinner is something out of the ordinary, extra special, no matter what time of day it happens. I mean, I believe when Jesus says, come and dine there on the coast, and he had bread and fish on the fire. I mean, that was closer to breakfast than anything else. But he said, come and dine. This was special. And friends, they didn't have the means to give him something special. They didn't have the means to give him a dinner. They weren't eating T-bone steak. They weren't eating the finest fare in the land. All they had was just their little meager belongings. They made him a supper. And friends, when we come to the house of God, all we have is a little supper that we're preparing for our Lord. But you want to talk about prayers, Brother Mark? Somewhere up in heaven, 
amidst all that splendor and all that majesty and all that glory and all that perfect praise with the angels and the cherubims and the seraphims and all the disembodied saints that are there in their soul and their spirit praising Him in the midst of all that. Again, if you'll allow my language, He says, just a moment. And He reaches down under His throne and He pulls up a golden vial, a pot, maybe even from the house of prayer. He pulls the top off of that pot and this odor fills the throne room of heaven and it goes in the nostril of our, of our Savior. You think, friends, that in heaven right now He's not looking on a scene like this and going, eh. Friends, He's looking at a scene like this and He says, that's my people. That's my tribe. And that which is happening here fills His person and has an effect on what's happening in heaven right now. The next time you feel like giving up, the next time you feel like your prayers aren't heard, you remember what this poor country preacher said, that what you do right now, if all you can do is groan in your spirit and say, God, help. God looks upon that with the same favor He does His Son. God looks upon that with the same pleasure He does His Son. And God in heaven right now is affected with what is happening here in His house on a regular and a continual basis. Let us... Offering unto him the praise of God continually, giving thanks unto his name, doing good and forgetting to communicate not, knowing that with such sacrifices God is well pleased. May he help us so to be. May the Lord bless you.